Welcome to the Acronym Podcast, the only B2B marketing podcast where we don't care about CPLs, MQLs, and SQLs. And instead, I'm going to be sitting down with the industry's top thought leaders, business owners, and entrepreneurs to uncover how they were able to build the confidence to make the leap into entrepreneurship and ultimately break free of those golden handcuffs. I'll also be discussing my own story, scaling a multiple six-figure marketing agency in under 12 months, and hope to be able to inspire the next generation of digital marketers to make that leap into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Chris Roach. Hey Janelle, thanks for coming on. Looking forward to talking with you today. Likewise, thanks for having me. I would, uh, I'd love to dive into uh, your detail, um, your background, kind of to start off with, uh, in terms of you know what is Elevate Growth uh, and how long have you been running that company? Yeah, great question. So Elevate Growth is a business that I founded. I consider myself like a solopreneur. Um, and I'm actually kind of in the process of rebranding it. So I'm going to move forward with being more of a fractional demand gen individual versus being a specific demand gen consultant. So I'm hoping that my business services can mold and help B2B SaaS startups within Series A all the way through Series C, really build out their demand gen functions all the way from the tip to top of strategy through the execution and beyond. Awesome. And just to dive in there, what's the difference between a demand generation consultant and a demand generation kind of agency, fractional? Like, can you talk about kind of what those differences are? Yeah. So to be honest with you, I'm still learning the best positioning between a consultant and a fractional. And that's totally me just being transparent. But here's what I've learned so far. Um, so an agency is more of like a full service suite. You have either in-house employees or you have subcontractors that kind of help. And you have multiple clients that you can work with across the span. With me being a, a solopreneur and a fractional individual, you just get me. I don't really have a whole bunch of subcontractors. I don't have um, any other employees that work underneath me. I'm the one that's leading the strategy and that's helping this company execute the demand gen portion. The difference between fractional and actual consultant could be two different things. A fractional individual comes in and says, like, we're pretty much the full service for you. I come in, I assess the strategy, and I figure out how to get the pieces together. If you have an agency, if you're putting together a strategy, you then have to like execute that strategy specifically in-house. From a fractional perspective, I can say, I can help you hire an individual in-house. I can do those type of interviews and hirings and bring somebody in. I can find you a contractor who's good at that. I can bring in a vendor or an agency, but it's my responsibility to source who's going to be doing that if it's not me. From a demand gen consultant perspective, you can go two ways. Um, you can definitely be like the strategic advisor where you have the knowledge and somebody's working with you because they have a, more of a junior team maybe and they need somebody mm -hmm. to come in and like lead the strategy and kind of grow the team. And that hasn't been one of the most popular journeys of my business. So that's why I think diving into more fractional made more sense for me specifically. One of the larger portions of um, what worked for me in my business is the other side of the consultant. I, I mentioned there were two packages. The other one is kind of just being a full service demand gen partner. Mm -hmm. and where that draws a line between being a demand gen partner versus being a fractional individual is the challenges I ran into is I, I am very, very good at identifying what the gaps are from a demand gen perspective and how a company needs to fill those. But going back to where I'm just one person, I may not always know Somebody, I, I may not always know the best way to get it done, um, or mm -hmm. I, I may not have the resources. Like a great example is creatives. If I can say 100% your company needs to be on LinkedIn, I can build a LinkedIn campaign. You know, I can help them identify their mm -hmm. target audience. I'm a terrible designer and you don't want me to be doing that, right? So that's yeah. where 
if I were to position myself as an agency, I fall short. I'm not full service and I can't help with that. And those were, you know, transparently some of the reasons about losing deals. If I position myself as fractional, hey, you need creative, I can find creative and get it done. I can work with uh, an outsourced um, web designer, right? Or, you know, mm-hmm. I, can figure, I can figure that out. And the conversation is a little more open and clear with that line drawn of who does what and why versus being a specific dimension consultant where now you have to figure out how to get it done and it's a little bit more sly. That's what I found, at least. Awesome. No, I love the fact that you said, you know, you're a solo Preneur, because I think that's it's a it's a very um, it's a very well used kind of expression. Now I think a lot of people obviously understand what that means, but there is this. I think hesitancy to admit you're a solopreneur by a lot of people, especially when you're starting off, because when you're in your first year and obviously you've just crossed the one year mark right now, does being a solopreneur does that make the perception of you they're smaller? Maybe they don't know what they're doing. You know, it, it, it suddenly it's a one person show. Like how? How much can that necessarily negatively affect that? And whereas, you know, we were talking before the show, you know, we've been in business pretty much the same same amount of time, you know, yourself and, and me with Catalyst. I went a different way. I built out a team underneath to be able to handle mm-hmm. everything, basically, because mm-hmm. I found, like you said, that was the reason why we were winning deals, because we could say, listen, we're going to handle everything, video editing, graphic design, Facebook, you know, LinkedIn, Google, you know, you name it, we can take care of that for you. And I basically built a team of subcontractors underneath me to be able to do that. Why did you choose to go that solopreneur route? And have you found that it has allowed you to work with uh, maybe in a more genuine way with clients? Have you managed to kind of qualify clients better by going that way? Yeah, great question. Um, I have been fortunate in my career to land in a managerial role very early on. I had two direct reports with only two years of experience out of college. Um, So that was fun. I learned a lot during that time. But also, as I grew in my career, the last other in-house roles that I had, I continuously had direct reports. And as much as I loved encouraging others and teaching others and showing others, the actual managerial part of it, I did not enjoy. And so running my own business and being, you know, my own self, I still don't find that I enjoy the little minute tasks of managing people. I would much rather have a conversation with somebody who is like, hey, be my mentor in demand gen, by all means, you know, like I would Mm -hmm. love to have those conversations and help with career growth and guide those type of, of things. But for me, in terms of just like from a managerial perspective, that was a big one. Um, And then another one is I'm not fully sure at the time. I'm sorry, let me back up. I wasn't fully sure where I wanted to go with the business. I started out a solopreneur and there was multiple times where I bounced back and forth on should I grow this to an agency? Should I Mm -hmm. stay small? Should I grow this to an agency? Should I stay small? And honestly, I bounced through that multiple times. But I think as of today, I'd like to remain as a solopreneur. I really enjoy... um, making my own schedule, you know, kind of just doing the work that I love. And I haven't really found that it it makes me seem as a lesser player in the field because you have to learn what your difference in offering is. And Mm -hmm. one of the challenges that I I found when working with a larger agency is oftentimes they get the most like strategic senior person that sells you and you fall in love and you have this really great relationship. And then they kind of hand you off to a more junior individual who does the actual execution and they miss that like strategy or connection portion to it. So one of my value sells is what you see is what you get, right? Like you Mm -hmm. and me till the end and we'll figure it out. We'll roll up our sleeves. We'll pivot. We'll do whatever we need. And I found that that helps a lot from like a relationship and networking perspective and the overall like longevity of the client. Well, I think especially someone that has a personal brand 
like you do and we'll, we'll talk about yeah. kind of you know building your personal brand we'll talk about kind of how you've had the success you've had with your podcast and with linkedin um True. but just from myself from launching my own personal brand everyone that comes into catalyst they want to work with me there's not you know they don't want to work with somebody else so when i'm having that conversation with them I'm like hey i'm going to be your point of contact that's why mm-hmm. in my experience i've not got past the point that we're at right now is because very similar to the way you're viewing it is i really enjoy working with the clients that i like working with and i want to work mm-hmm. with them and i've had clients since literally the first month that i started that still work with me that i want to continue to work with them even though they're not the same type of clients as some of like the series c companies that are coming in now whereas you know you see kind of those clients move on but for mm-hmm. me i i enjoy that and it's a selling point when I'm having those conversations. So I can absolutely see why, you know, and you say, hey, I'm a solopreneur, like, it's me. You know, it, it, everything is completely transparent. You know, what you see is what you get. You know, I will be the one that's working with it. I'm going to handle everything. And if there is something that's missing, even though I don't personally do it, we're going to go and find someone for you that's going to be able to, you know, offer that. What I'd like to do now is rewind the clock a little bit. Let's get back to your two years out of college. You've got direct reports that are, are working with you. You know, you're in-house. Talk me through kind of that career progression as to the first couple of jobs that you had, you know, what you were able to, you know, really accomplish and learn. And then what was it that suddenly made that switch where you said, yep, yeah, I'm ready to go out on my own and I'm going to face this and build my own company now? Wow. Let's see if I can remember all the way back then and all the pivotal career <laughs> moments that happened. Um, I knew when I first started my career, the very first job I had out of college was in the mortgage industry. And while the role in and of itself in the team, they were really, really knowledgeable and they helped me learn the direction that I wanted to go with marketing. The industry of mortgage for me was not it. It was not Uh sexy in my opinion and I did not enjoy it. And the next role that I landed, I did know I wanted to go into the digital world. At the time, digital was booming, right? Everybody wanted to go SEO, SEM, PPC. It was like the world of, of everything booming. And so I knew for a fact I wanted to go into digital. And I landed a digital and demand gen role at a B2B SaaS tech company. And from that moment is when I fall, fell in love into SaaS. So that was like kind of the, from there, I've never left SaaS. I've always loved it. Um, that was the role that I got the two direct reports on. And um, it was just me and the leader of marketing and we were leading marketing and he mm-hmm. was responsible for all things events and sales enablement. And I was responsible for all things digital and demand, which spanned all the way from you know PPC through SEO and SEM, I managed the websites. And so that role in and of itself gave me a lot of experience and a lot of startup experience too which then positioned me over to a uh, demand general. It was straight demand general, I believe. Um, and that's when I really kind of expanded my demand gen skills. I was just say, l- let me ask that on the first first demand gen role that you were in as a SaaS company, and I know this yeah. just from personal experience working with and helping kind of young marketers go through their career, was that demand gen or was that a lead gen role named demand gen? Like how demand gen was that when you were first starting off? Great question. It was a mixture of both. Um, It definitely was a lead gen model, um, but the intent behind everything we were trying to do to drive demand was there. And Mm -hmm. I actually worked on changing the Google Ads strategy from the direct response of the lead gen model into driving a little more of like a brand awareness play. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I had my hand, I was only there, I think, like a year and a half or so. I had my hand into kind of changing that in a different, more modern perspective based on the outcome of what the business was. This was before demand gen was really even like big, right, or, or mm-hmm. known in the industry or the difference between lead gen and demand gen. Um, but kind of just like based on common knowledge or common sense, it was just this doesn't make sense. Why, why are we doing it this way? Can we change it? And the founder at the time was really open. He loved me coming with ideas and wanted to try things and test things out and almost to a fault. Um, we learned a lot. We failed a lot. We failed quickly and we fixed things. Um, mm-hmm. But it was it was really fun, you know, coming in and, and learning that. So fundamentally, right, it was a lead gen model. But I think the idea transitioning it was was there in terms yeah. of the direction that the company wanted to go. So you got that, that real hands-on experience actually pivoting from lead generation yeah. to demand generation, which obviously now is, you know, I'd imagine is an enormous part of your day is listen, companies come to you and say, hey, I want to move from lead gen to demand gen. You're the, you know, you're Help. the one I want to talk with. How do I, <laughs> how do, I do that? You know, that's, but you actually got that, that hands-on experience very, very early on. You then took that, you then went into what sounds like more of a true demand generation position. And then, you know, just from looking at, you know, your LinkedIn, kind of looking at the history, then you moved into this Series C company. Is that correct? Yeah, so actually let's let's back up into the second role that I landed as demand gen because that one was an entirely lead gen model and that's where I struggled because okay. I learned so much and I really wanted to apply these knowledges. Um, but that company was very, very focused on enabling sales. And this goes back to marketing being oh, sales yeah. as assistance and wanting to fall at the, at the uh, feet of sales. And I struggled mm-hmm. with that role a lot and we did a lot of great things, don't get me wrong, but we were constantly never able to actually prove marketing's efficiency because me and the director were stuck constantly with these barriers and pivoting and changing and wanting to do these smaller minute things where I feel like we just really struggled with driving that momentum and that growth and it was that company when the pandemic happened and then I actually got laid off and I dabbled two weeks into consulting on my own I was like I've never dreamed of being laid off right nobody dreams of being laid off but it was never never really a reality for me that that could be mm-hmm. a possibility. And so when it happened, me and my husband were totally blindsided by it. And I, I've always kind of been a hustle person. And so I was like, I'm determined, right, to like supplement my income and do this. And so I, I did some consulting for two weeks. Um, and in two weeks, I think it was, I secured a full-time role. Um, and so that was the next role that I had, all things to manage. And that was another great learning experience. I believe they were series... B uh, when uh-huh. I joined. Um, I don't actually remember at the time. I think they were going towards the Series C mm-hmm. um, where we had just gone live. Um, I, I, don't, I don't recall that too much, unfortunately. Um, but that was the role where I actually went on maternity leave and then I had my kid and I came back. And so they, they were very, very good to me and I learned a lot with Demand Gen. And that role had a lot of fun. I think they understood the difference between demand gen and lead gen. We still mm-hmm. had those barriers, right, with the sales team um, and uh, always needing to deliver leads, 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 leads. But that's when I really learned my how to talk to executives positioning and really rolling up the things that matter for executives because I had to say, listen, I hear you, but like, here's what we're actually trying to accomplish. And this, when it works, is going to help you guys so much more than what you're specifically asking me to drop and do right now. And so really mm-hmm. kind of having that like, hey, we're going to massage this conversation a little bit more and like really having that partnership, that sales enablement, like the marketing and sales alignment. That's when I really sharpened those skills in terms of how to really be like a strong demand gen partner. 
So one of the things that I want to rewind there, just because I, I find it personally interesting, is you you said you got laid off, which obviously is very relevant right now with what's mm-hmm. happening. And you said, right, now I, I'm going to start consulting, and I did it for two weeks, and then I got a full-time position. During those two weeks, what do you mean by you consulted for two weeks, and did you continue to have them as clients when you moved into that full-time mm-hmm, position? Great question. Mm-hmm. Like, what, like, yeah. what does that look like? Yeah, so I totally, I'm trying to remember how I sourced that. I think I just reached out like cold on somebody on LinkedIn that was asking for help. And I was like, hey, I can help you. And then they were totally open in the conversation, liked me, and we rolled with it. Um, No, I'm lying. It was a Slack community. I think it was within a women in revenue Slack community. They did a post and I was like, hey, I can help you. So that's how the connection happened. Um, And then for the two weeks that I was unemployed from a full-time perspective, I was hustling with them. And then I kept them on, I think for a total of four months, if I'm not lying, um, to complete the initial scope that I uh, signed with them to do. I didn't want to just say, hey, I got a full-time role, like deuces. You know, I wanted to conclude it, but I did tell them from the the get-go that my intention is to find a full-time role. So I was very clear on that intention. And that, um, uh, and and she, who was my point of contact at the time, um, she was totally uh, transparent and just needed kind of the help right then and there. So that was just a really good role. And then um, the full-time company said that I couldn't have anything conflicting. And so prior to joining, I told them, listen, I'm already signed on with um, with this as like a part-time consulting. Again, I don't intend to continue it on. I just need to close out the scope. And so I just needed to sign something that after that I, I wouldn't take on anything else and be fully dedicated full-time. And then, yeah, no, that was that transition. <laughs> Do you regret not continuing to consult on the side with that position knowing that you you i mean how quickly you got a client in consulting you know you're obviously very talented at sourcing clients you obviously were doing a good job you took this amazing full-time position the argument i make to a lot of marketers right now is just because you work full-time doesn't mean you can't freelance on the side but here in this instance you signed an agreement they said listen i'm not going to freelance on the side i'm going to be 100 dedicated to you which to me 40 hours a week dedication that's great but afterwards i do whatever the hell i want on, on when in my own time like is that something that you've ever looked back on and gone i wonder what would have happened if i continued to freelance on the side or were you very happy with the kind of decision you made there yeah, great question. So to clarify, the reason why I had to sign that is because it was a little bit of conflicting from like a competitive, like addressable okay. market perspective, not necessarily that they had a problem with me consulting, but because that was my only one, I didn't really have anything else to fall back on, right? So point of clarification, the company wasn't just crazy. Um, but from there, I don't know, I never really thought about that because my gut says no, okay. because I never really thought about running my own business. I never really thought about it. It was never a dream for me. And so now that I'm here, I really don't think doing it part time was my thing. I feel like it needed to be an all or nothing for me. um, Because I'm, I don't know, I'm one of those where I'm just like, eh, tomorrow, or eh, maybe one day or eh, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was never really like, I didn't have that passion behind me to say, I should be doing this to replace an income in case I get laid off again. I, mm-hmm. you know, looking back, I never really even considered it, so. Okay, got you. And that, that's what I think is probably most, to me anyway, that's most interesting with your story is that you never really had this desire to start your own company. Yeah. You, know, you, never, you never had this like burning desire to say, hey, like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to go and do this. You know, you're obviously, you're very happy in-house as a marketer. You obviously did very good work when you were in-house. You, you know, you, had, you did amazing work with finding 
clients to come on when you freelance for two weeks. I mean, that's crazy amount of time frame to be able to, you know, get your first client. You know, a lot of people that are listening to this who have just been laid off are thinking, I wish I could get a client in two weeks, you know. So you have this clear natural ability to bring on clients. You have a natural ability, obviously, to uh, to be able to, you know, go into full-time positions. There obviously was a lot of demand for you personally. You then moved to a company, uh, which it sounds like you were there for uh, on the kind of the, the last company before you started your own company, you were there for a short time period and then were you, was that a, a laid off at the end of that or was that a decision where you said, hey, I, I don't want to be here anymore? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to frame that. The reason why I had never thought about going out on my own is I didn't really understand what all it meant or how to do it or have somebody who has done it before that can coach me in that direction. And when I was in-house at the last in-house position that I was at, within 30 days of joining, I was presented with a question that really questioned my ethical and and moral beliefs. And at that point, I went to all of my career mentors who have kind of kept me afloat today and asked them what would they do? Like if they were in that position, like what would they do? And all of them were cheering me on and was saying, girl, go on on your own. I got you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do this. There's a market for you. Like, here's everything you need to know. And it was that level of coaching and encouragement that gave me the fire behind my shoes. And then also the fact that I walked away from corporate cold turkey. So I had to mm-hmm. replace my income. You know, like I kind of had to figure out how to make it work, um, which I think I needed. I, I really did need. Um, but I think it just came back to like, the naiveness of not knowing what it actually looks like and not hearing enough about the pros and the cons of it and just the reality behind it. Everybody thinks entrepreneurship is this big lifelong dream where you work two hours a week and you just go sailing or on boat rides or at the beach all the time. And it's really not that. And that level of transparency and understanding what it takes to be successful and even to grow an agency or to remain afloat solo you know, that, that's a, those are really hard conversations to have. And mm-hmm. fortunately, at the time, I had people on my side who were helping me and transparently have kept me afloat to date by sending me referrals um, and companies that have wanted to work with me based on just their name recognition in and of itself. Which is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're absolutely spot on. And that's, that's part of the reason that I wanted to launch this podcast is to show people not only the positives. Everybody can look at you now and say, Janelle's an amazing success. She has a company. She's a solopreneur. You know, she's, she's out. She's killing it. Anyone can look at any of the guests that I'm going to have on this, this podcast and say, that they, you know, they're absolutely killing it, but I, I could never do that. But the fact right. is, you can. It's not all this positivity. And typically, that first 12 months, it's not all sunshines and rainbows. There's a lot of difficult decisions that you have to make. And sometimes, like in your instance, it almost takes, and hopefully it doesn't take, obviously, an ethical dilemma for somebody to make the decision but going out on your own putting your back against the the ropes and really forcing yourself and you know making yourself look yourself in the mirror and say okay now what I, i've been reliant on other companies and, and you know just from your perspective you, you've been reliant on other companies you've been let go you've been put in positions where you know you don't feel comfortable and now i want to go out on my own and i want to succeed by myself talk me through those first three weeks, four weeks of going out on your own? You know, what was going on in your head when you suddenly decided, hey, I'm going out on my own, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I'm going to be a business owner, and then suddenly you go, shit, what do I do next? That's a great question. Again, the same people who kind of kept me afloat all the way through today. um, When I was pressed with that ethical decision, they were fortunate and kind enough to, not fortunate, they were kind enough to give me 30 days to decide. 
So within those 30 days, I took two weeks to just ask anybody and everybody what they would do. Sometimes I gave the details, sometimes I didn't, just based on the pulse check. And my friends and family told me, girl, you're crazy. Stay in-house. What are you doing? Like, it's a job. It's salary. You know, it's forecasted income. The professional side were like, girl, what are you doing? Don't let corporate define you. Nobody should be mm-hmm. telling you how to, how to live your life, right? And they were the ones that got it, that they understood it. And these are very highly successful CMOs, business owners, people who have years of experience that I had behind me. Um, and so after those first two weeks of just kind of surveying and assessing, the last two weeks, I hustled and I needed to figure out clients, right? If I had already made my decision, I had two weeks to figure out what I was going to do about it. And mm-hmm. One of my career mentors um, at the time set me up um, with my very first client. So I left in-house on a Friday and started my first client on a Monday. So I had done all the paperwork in those two weeks um, and got them signed and the start date for that Monday after I walked away from corporate. So I never really had that lag between twiddling my thumbs of like, I don't have any income for two weeks. You know, it's like I, uh-huh. I was able to, to secure that before I even made that decision, before I gave my notice. Um, and then I literally walked away from there. I was like, what the hell am I doing? How do uh-huh. I do this? Right. And you figure it out as you go, but there was no really like segue between, you know, taking time off or working or anything. I just went like head first into it. Now I would imagine, and we don't have to get into too much specifics here, but yeah. one client as a referral is not going to replace your income from what you're making as an in-house marketer. So do you mind me asking, uh, well, first of all, how you decided what your pricing tier was going to be as you first yeah, started off, um, and, and if you'd be and if you'd be willing to share, I don't know if you're still working with the client or if you'd be willing to share, you know, what you were charging as your first ever monthly retainer, just to kind of give an idea of people that are starting, like what they yeah. should be charging, and, and maybe looking back, was that the correct amount? Should you been charging more? Should you been charging less? Yeah, so to not get too much into specifics, because um, unfortunately I, I can't, and this is something that you and I yeah. talked about beforehand, just you know, for clarity for the audience, my husband is a police officer, and so we're very cautious with what we put on public display, um, simply because we don't want anything to come back and harm our family in the long run. So if you have these questions, feel free to reach out to me. I can talk to you one-on-one, but I don't like to public go, publicly go on record with anything that could be you know, used to potentially harm my family. With that said, um, I was able to replace my month's salary on that first month that I signed with that client. So if um, I was ending that role very beginning of December, so, you know, your last payroll comes in whatever Mm -hmm. first couple of trickle days of December that you work, whatever, you know, that comes from the prorated rate. And then from December 6th is when I started that new client from six through the end replaced pretty much like what I would have gotten from a salary perspective. And that mm-hmm. was the same scope of work that I had. It was a duration of a four month contract. They just wanted me to come in, set the demand gen strategy, initiate the breadcrumbs, and they had the team to execute. They were just needing somebody to really help kind of connect the gaps. So we parted ways uh, amicably. I never say that word right. Um, yeah. And uh, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was enough for me you know it was it was enough um with what i needed to stay afloat and to continue understanding pricing understanding how to position myself and how to land a next one so how do you decide kind of starting off what you are going to charge for consulting specifically with you coming in you're a consultant there isn't really a manager a a measurable you're not you know Mm -hmm. you're not tied to results in this you're not actually executing the strategy as a consultant how did you decide you know what you were going to charge was it a case of i'm going to replace my salary so i'm going to charge you know i'm just going to match that and therefore i know i'm going to be kind of the same or did you ever think 
I'm going to go in a little bit low because I really need this project right now. Like, what was that kind of inner dialogue as you were deciding on that pricing? And again, not getting too specific, just in terms of like the, the thought process going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if this is the right or wrong way. So if there's anybody who's like a business entrepreneur coach about how to set pricing, by all means, listen to them and not me. This is just what I did because, again, I was naive and I don't fully know everything and I'm still learning. But what I did is I figured out one of the biggest challenges that I was facing was people were tied to an hourly outcome and an hourly input. And so I wanted to figure out what I was worth per hour. And I did kind of like a random people survey and just asked what they would pay hourly for a demand gen. And if I were to be a subcontractor for other like agencies, what their rate would fit within their profit mm -hmm. margin. So I kind of got a scope of like how I was valued in the market. Again, that's hourly, that's freelance roles, right? That's something where it's like, I just need something done real quick and I'll just pay you for the hour. That doesn't mm -hmm. translate well when it's consulting. That was one of the things that I learned. Freelance and consulting are two different things. Consultants are strategists. Freelancers, for the most part, I mean, they can be strategic. I don't want to offend anybody, right? But like, for the most part, freelancers, you know, they, they just do, they do. And that's why they, they charge an hourly rate. Yeah, because yeah. they can do stuff really, really fast, you know, and that's why they're so cheap. And so I didn't, I, knowing that, I didn't want to be positioned as a freelancer. So I went around on just, I just Googled like demand and agencies and figured out pricing based on what I could find online on how they price. And these were full suite demand gen agencies. So I was like, okay, mm -hmm. so here's the tippity top, here's the lowest, where do I fit, right? And so finding a, a balance between, I cannot offer everything a demand gen agency could offer, right? And they probably have years of experience and client referrals. There's no way I could be that greedy to ask for something like that. But at the same time, I would be valuing myself too short if I just did an hourly output, calculated how many hours I wanted to work during the month, and then added that as like my monthly retainer fee. So I kind of just, you know, did a little bit of market research and asked a few people what they would value and what they would pay. And then I upped it because I wanted to be seen as something that was a little more elite than just any other regular consultant. Um, and again, that goes back to you get me, you know, as egoistic as that sounds. And I, I don't mean to come off that way, but that's my value cell. And so I, I wanted the pricing to be a little bit more of like trustworthiness of what you're actually getting out of it. Well, I think you have to be. I, I don't think it is egotistical. I think it's it's perceived value. If you came in, you said, yeah. "Hey, I'm going to charge 500 bucks a month to be a consultant." Yeah. Even though, even though you would be able to do the same quality work for 500 bucks a month, if you charge 500 bucks or you charge five grand, I can tell you, most companies are going to go with the five grand consultant, even if it's the same person, because the perceived exactly. value is far greater. Now, what what I've been finding is a lot of people reach out to me and say, "Hey, I want to." start consulting, I want to start freelancing on the side, I'm making, just round numbers here, I'm making $100,000 a year, which works out to, you know, whatever it is, an hour, so it's 40, 50 bucks an hour, so I'm going to go and start consulting as a, as a marketing specialist or a demand generation specialist of 40 to 50 bucks an hour, I'm saying absolutely not, you've got to triple that just to get to the point where you can compete, and because if you're doing it on top of your full-time job, it's basically overtime is the way I've been kind of trying to describe it to people. And also your expertise far surpasses that. You've talked about hourly versus monthly retainers. Do you tend to do everything on a monthly basis now? And is there a reason that you've kind of moved more in that direction? Yeah, I feel like I will. I want to answer everything you just said in so many different ways. I think, and first and foremost, one of the things that I learned is if you're just starting out and you have a full-time role and you just need to get some clients, 
I don't particularly think it's bad to do the 40 or 50 hour rate because you'll get people and you'll get experience and you'll learn what it takes to actually consult. From mm -hmm. there, you can up your prices because now you are you have a little bit more of the expertise. And I don't want to say that even if you have you know seven years of marketing experience that you need to go in at a $50 an hour versus $150 an hour rate because you know, you definitely have marketing experience, but you don't have consulting experience. Mm -hmm. And so part of that is you need to understand the playing field that you're entering. And so I think, you know, not selling yourself too short, but then also not going too competitive out the front because not everybody's going to understand that if you are going the hourly perspective. Um, from there, to answer your question about from a monthly retainer, to be totally transparent, because I always am, no. My goal is to always have monthly retainers, right? But yeah. because my story was I left corporate cold turkey, I've taken on stuff that's literally just an SOW, three, four right. months, however long it needs to take to complete it. I've taken stuff where it's hourly work. I've taken subcontracting roles because I needed the income to stay afloat. I've taken a lot of unsexy stuff. Part of my business model for 2023 is to change that. Now that I have the experience, now that I have clients, now that I better understand what I'm dealing with, who I'm playing with, you know, now I can better focus on me, focus on my business. Uh -huh. But I needed that, you know, to really understand what it takes and, you know, and the pricing and the position and all of that. So, no, you know, definitely don't just always go towards marketing or the monthly retainers. Um, but the goal is to, because again, that goes back to what you say for the perceived value of, I want to be perceived as so valuable on a monthly basis that, you know, it's a no brainer to come out of pocket for a specific amount to, to keep me. And I think, you know, the hourly first couple of clients, it's almost a rite of passage of starting your own agency. Um, you've almost got to go through that, get a couple of those clients. When I was first starting, I, I, I white labeled for another agency underneath me, um, mm -hmm. in the first. I don't know, month I, I started, um, I did 10 hours for them and then said, listen, it's not worth it. I was like, I, I just, for me, it just, it was such a, it was such a bad fit. I was like, I, I'm just, I'm not enjoying this. I don't like working. I don't agree with the way that you market. I want to do all these different ways. And I was like, I know that I can go and get more clients, even though my hourly rate was fairly high. It was, you know, 100, 150 bucks an hour to do that. And I was like, it's just not worth it for me to do this. I want to go and get my own clients. And I want to, like you say, be that strategist as well as, the one that's actually executing, you know, the actual campaigns and ex executing kind of the recommendations. The challenging part with being a subcontractor and white labeled under somebody else is you called it out. You don't get your own clients like you're white labeled mm -hmm. under an extension of their services. So if you're needing to expand and get that client referrals and quotes and testimonials to build off of like your credibility, you don't get any of that. You get the experience and you get the pay. Mm -hmm. But to your point, I agree with you. I would value more of having like my own client logo and the experience and the pay versus um, going under, you know, I I've seen that as well. We're going to take a quick moment to pause this episode and thank our sponsors. Firstly, we've got the first sponsor, which is True Classic, the clothing company. As you all know from all of my content, I've been wearing True Classic for the last 18 months, and it truly is the staple of my wardrobe. What I find is that a lot of the clothes that I buy previously were all too baggy, they didn't fit right. The best part about True Classic, not only is it incredibly soft, but for those of you that have broader shoulders, that have larger arms, who just tend to be a little bit more athletic, the fit is absolutely amazing. It makes you look great. And a lot of people call these really the push-up bras for guys. I can tell you, when you wear these t-shirts, you look good. If you're interested in trying True Classic, there's gonna be a link in the description of this episode. There's gonna be my personal link, or you can go to trueclassics.com 
youtube.com slash the Chris Roach. Go ahead, check out the store. I guarantee you, you will not be sorry if you start wearing True Classics. If you do end up purchasing them, please let me know what you purchased. I'm curious to hear feedback. Moving on to our second sponsor, which is the Independent Marketer, which is an online course and community that I've created to be able to teach digital marketers how to go out and break out of the golden handcuffs and ultimately launch either their own freelancing career or build it into their own digital marketing agency. In the description, there's gonna be a link to that course. And as a thank you for listening to this podcast, there's gonna be a special $100 discount on that course as well. If you do have any questions on that, please feel free to reach out to me directly or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Back to the episode. Jumping back into uh, the interview, kind of talking about you know this first year. You know, you've just crossed that year mark. When you came out of the gate, you replaced your income, which is great. You know, you it gives you a certain level of confidence. It sounds like it was a four-month contract. Was that always the case? Where every month did you make the same that you were as your you know in your previous role? You know, every month did you you know quote unquote make payroll for yourself? You know, were you taking a a distribution every single month from what the work you were doing i am just like laughing out loud right now because if the answer to that for anybody is yes please tell me your secret um because if you're not dreaming about making money because you're falling short are you really an entrepreneur (laughs) um and again yeah i'm only like this is my second year in right and i'm still learning a lot and i i didn't have the background to jump into this with experience i'm still figuring out as we go To answer your question, oh my goodness, absolutely, did I question going out on my own. Um, I think it was August of last year, or it was just after the summer months or something, when the recession was just starting to get talked about, and everybody kind of was, you know, pulling back on some budget, Mm -hmm. like pausing everything, really trying to figure it out. I had nothing. I had a little onesie twosies, and you know, but I wasn't getting like my normal monthlies, the interest, discovery calls, inbounds nothing I, I was nothing and i this is when i called on my career mentors and i was like did i make a mistake do i need to go back in house to supplement my income and again this is because i had nothing else to fall back on right i switched cold turkey one to the other so as like if, if i don't make anything for my family like do i do i need to consider even maybe going back part-time like what does this look like yeah and again, they're very, very smart individuals. They told me the recession is the best thing for us external outsourcing vendors, partners, you know, oh, yeah. consultants, everything. Because unfortunately for those that are in house is when layoffs happen, but business outcomes still need to get done. And there is still some budget, but they want to figure out the most efficient way to, to spend that. Most of the time that's by hiring somebody externally. So they have to pay for the overhead and the insurance and everything else from that. Um, and so they said, hold on, just hold on, just hold on. And they kept telling me that and bless their heart. They've been sending me business too. Right. So again, they have helped me like stay afloat. Um, but 1000% I've questioned it. And there's been months where I've only brought in a hundred dollars or $160, right. Or it's like, that's not a living paycheck. And another thing to take into consideration is the amount of self-employment tax. And if you need to pay mm-hmm. your own insurance, some people can go on their spouse's insurance. I, that's not the case for me. I have to pay my own out of my business expense. So that should be taken into consideration with your pricing models, being able to make sure that you're taking enough profit margin outside of all of your monthly expenses and your health insurance and everything outside of that. Um, but yeah, no, to answer your question 1000%, there's been times where I've thought about going back in house and I didn't want to, that was the thing. I didn't want to, mm-hmm. I, I've really enjoyed this journey. And I just, I just needed, I just needed work. And so that goes back to taking unsexy things and doing unsexy projects. But 
you know, lessons learned. Is being an independent marketer riskier than being an in-house full-time marketer? Probably. You think it's riskier to be independent? Despite the despite the layoffs, despite everything we're seeing right now, and, and being a year into it, you think it's still riskier to be standing by yeah. yourself? Yeah. I, th- I think it's risky, but it's worth it. Okay. That's what I, I would I would caveat with because when you're when you're in corporate, yeah, you have the risk, but a lot of people are like, but does it really apply to me? And that's when a lot of people get yeah. blindsided, right? When they do see those layoffs happen. So I think you take a risk either way. I think it's riskier being your own boss and being your own because it's up to you. It's up yeah. to your network. It's up to your personal brand. It's up to your like work ethic. It's like nobody else can help you other than you and like you've got to figure out how to get it done. Sometimes in corporate, you know, you're you're kind of cruising along and you're still getting a paycheck and you're having the time of your life while still only working smaller hours and you still get, you know, this bigger paycheck. And as an entrepreneur, if you don't work, you don't get paid, right? Mm-hmm. Some people joke at me and they're like, "Hey, it's a holiday today. Why are you working?" I'm like, "Uh, cuz I have like deadlines to meet." Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what's if a, I don't work, I don't a, get paid. What's a holiday? It's what's a holiday? <laughs> So, you know, I, I don't know. I would say, yeah, it's riskier, but I would, I would say it's worth it. I've, I've never really looked back and wanted to go back to corporate. No regrets then over the last 12 months from going out on your own compared to where you were, obviously. You no regrets. Second thoughts for sure. But oh, yeah, regrets, yeah. regrets? No, no. Imposter syndrome? Almost every day. <laughs> 1,000 percent. Yeah, it's probably like six times a day. Like, it's like the entrepreneur roller coaster. It's like you get this really high up, and then you're like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? And like, oh, cool, this just happened. And like, oh my God, what do I even know what I'm doing? And oh, like, in one day. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's funny, actually. You, you know, you mentioned you, you, know, you, you have to pay for your benefits, your self employment tax. I mean, there's a lot of costs associated with running a business that people just don't think of. Um, so six, I don't know, six months ago, no, yeah, probably just, just over six months ago, my wife left her job in the school to come and work for Catalyst. So now we're both on Catalyst. So when you talk about kind of that risk factor, you know, Catalyst now supports both of us and it is the only support thing we have right now. Neither of us have a, you know, quote yeah. unquote, full-time job. Um, but to me, I see that as an advantage of the fact that, listen, if I can't make it work, nobody can make this work. So that to me is almost a motivation to continue to do that as we're both reliant on this right now. You know, we both work with that. You know, Casey handles a lot of actually the podcast editing, the video editing um, kind of that we'll, that we'll do with this as well and obviously for our clients. Um, but to me, that was one of the most, I think, fulfilling parts of growing a business was the moment I could say, listen, now it takes care of both of us. It takes care of our entire family. We're now at a point where we live in an RV for the next eight months. We're traveling around. We have complete time and financial freedom now, but we would have never got to that point if we didn't start and we didn't get through those, you know, very difficult three, six months where you do start to question it very, very regularly. I can remember even turning away jobs um, where I was getting these jobs of $150,000, a year. I'm thinking, that would be really cool right now because that was more than I was making at the time as a, a fr- as a consultant, as a freelancer. I'm thinking that would be really good. But if you can push past those points, you get to that kind of other side and it may take you, you know, six months, it may take you a year, it may take you five years to kind of get to that point. And what I found is the longer I'm in business, the easier closing clients gets, the more referrals we get, the more inbound we get. And it's just breaking past that initial I think three to six months for a lot of marketers is the difficult part to be able to really do this as a long-term solution. Yeah, my mentors always said the first year is the hardest. You, yeah. you learn so much. First year is the hardest. I said, so I'm looking forward for this year because it's my second year. So we'll see how much different it is. But I think what you said, it really goes back to having a solid like family support system. 
and really having the support of the encouragement of those that are close next to you. One of the reasons why I'm able to be a solopreneur is because of my husband's like support to me. And we're a little more of like a traditional couple. So he's, you know, the provider for the family and he worries about the finances and make sure that we have a roof over our head and food on the table and stuff. And so he takes the mental load of that to where it allows me to play the role of raising our baby daughter. And if I need to clear half a day of my schedule, I can do that. And being a solopreneur, mm -hmm. being a, a business owner allows me to do that. And so with having a little kid that's so small, it, uh, it enables me to still play both roles and get my career mm -hmm. fulfillment, but then also get like my mom fulfillment as well. And it doesn't really, I mean, like I have like my monthly financial goals as a business, but I'll caveat this with like, my situation is so different, right? Because I talked about going in-house to like consulting like um, cold turkey, but I also have an amazing husband who, if I don't make my whatever like goal for the month, like we're okay. So I'm not losing sleep at night of like, oh my God, I don't have any pipeline or like, oh my God, I don't have any clients. Like I still want to help and, you know, be a contributor to the household income, but I'm not like I'm the provider for this family. Like if I don't make money, my kid's not going to have a roof over their head. So I'm fortunate that I don't have that situation. And I know with a lot of freelancers and, you know, individuals like yourself, who you guys are male and you guys are the providers of the household, you guys take that stress a lot heavier um, than someone on a female audience like myself that prefers to have more of like the mother uh, role, right? And like, um, you know, I, I don't know, I don't want to get too much into no, I, like, traditional, you know, and all that stuff, but that's the case for me. I think, no, I think that's a great point. For, for me, that was a huge motivational factor of the fact that I've always been the breadwinner. I've been the breadwinner yeah. since, you know, since, since we've been, the day we've been married, I've always been the breadwinner. So when I left a six-figure position to start a company, I didn't have that long to figure it out. And that to me was, you know, it was terrifying. And, but it was the motivation that got me to be able to do that. It gave me the motivation to go and make those 100 phone calls a day, to pick up the phone, to cold call, to cold LinkedIn, to basically not give a shit who you were talking to, to try and close a deal because I needed to replace my income. And I knew from being a previous chief revenue officer, if I can get on the phone with someone, I know I can close them. I just got to get a meeting set. So for me, that was very much the motivation for that. And if I'm hearing you correctly, on your standpoint, you didn't have that pressure, so it allowed you to grow much more organically and to a point where mm. it fit your lifestyle more, which I think is an important note to make here is that, you know, a lot of, for my course, for the independent marketer, my online course and community, there's a ton of female marketers that are signing up for that, who many of which, when I'm asking them, what does success look like for you? Why do you want to be a independent marketer? I want to spend more time with my family. I want to spend more time with my children. I want to be able to, you know, go and do things in the middle of the day. I want to be able to work out at noon. I don't want to drive to an office. You know, these factors where if you're not the breadwinner and, you know, that may be the situation, this enables a whole different life for you, but you can still make the same as you would do if you were in-house. And that, to me, is the beauty of becoming kind of that independent marketer is the upside is significantly larger than being an in-house marketer. It just might take some time to be able to get there. And you're not guaranteed to replace your salary in year one. It may not happen. It may take two years. It may take three years. But it can always kind of incrementally increase as you start to scale your business. Yeah, I think a few things to reflect on from there. I think it's also how you manage your finances. 
And so my husband takes the mental load of providing, you know, being a provider for our family. But income-wise, like, we make about the same, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we're, we're pretty equal. And there's not one where he's making, you know, millions of dollars and I'm only, like, 50000 a year. Like, we're, we, we're pretty equal in terms of where we meet middle, in the middle grounds. Um, but what I will say is if you are, you know, a woman or, you know, looking to be more present with your family and your kids, One of the things that's worked really well for me is being more of a mom during the day and running my business at night. And so I only work 10 to 3, honestly. And I take an hour-long break uh, for lunch because I can, right, because I'm my own boss. But really, if you work that down per day, I only work like three to five hours a day. Like, And that's mm-hmm. client work, that's business work, that's LinkedIn work, that's everything that I have going for me. That That's all that I do during the day so that I can spend time with my baby when she wakes up in the morning, you know, and when she comes home, she's not there for 12 hours, you know. Um, and so I'm able to just be present in her life. After she goes to bed, that's when I'm like, all right, I got all these projects and everything that work out for me. And this works for me because my husband's on night shift. So yeah. I have nothing else to do, right? Instead of just basking my loneliness. To put myself have to the freedom and work, yeah. So yeah, I'd say, you, you, you know, have the freedom to manage. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. No, I think it's I think it's amazing. You have the freedom to manage your own schedule with that. Um, yeah. Listen, Janelle, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I wish you weren't coming up on the hour, but I know we're getting kind of towards that time. And there's two yeah. questions that I want to ask you before uh, I kind of I kind of let you go. Um, as a female entrepreneur, you, you've you've launched an amazing business with this. You know, what advice would you give to someone who is in their shoes oh sorry, who who's perhaps, you know, in that position where they're looking to start, whether they want to go cold turkey, whether they want to start on the side, you know, what advice would you give to someone that's really interested in exploring this as a potential career move, but maybe doesn't have that confidence or is riddled with imposter syndrome to make that leap? Mm, bet on yourself. Because if you don't, who will? All of us have imposter syndrome all of us like that shouldn't be an excuse but if you don't bet on yourself who will and look at where you want to be in 5 10 15 years what changes you need to do today to make that happen yeah and to, to, to add on to that i think a lot of people overestimate what they can accomplish in one year of business but massively underestimate what they can accomplish in five years so when you mm-hmm. look at this and you say, "Listen, I'm, I'm going to start a start an agency. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make 150,000, 200,000 in the first year." You're probably not. It's not every agency is going to do that. But in five years, there's nothing to stop you steadily making 250 a year, working 20 to 30 hours a week. Like that's that's what can happen once you get to that point. And I think the uh, the confidence to do so and the understanding of it's not going to be the easiest road to start off with but you build the confidence you build the muscle you build the reputation you build the network and from there obviously you know the sky really is the limit and if you need a cheerleader reach out to me i'm been told i'm a good one so <laughs> I'll awesome and that's that's my final question where can people reach out to you where can they learn more about you i know you have your own podcast you know can you talk a little bit about that yeah, so you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, um, at Janelle Miss, right? I'm active on TikTok, although I'm not really sure for how much longer. I have a podcast you can find on YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Um, it's called The Demand Gen Made Simple Show, um, just Demand Gen Made Simple. So, Or, you know, visit my website, elevate-growth.com. Awesome, and I'll provide links into, uh, to all those in the description. Thank you very much for joining on this episode, Janelle. It's been a real pleasure kind of hearing your story and uh, love, the, you know, love the growth and the, the direction that you're going in for 2023. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. 
And that concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please head into the comments where you'll find all of the available links. If you have any questions on our sponsors, all the links will be in the description. Please stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you.